Well, good morning. We're going to use uh, the big end that we came to last week. We, if you were with us, you remember we finished really the first half of John's Gospel as we closed out John chapter 12. And with coming to that big end just a few weeks before our celebration of Christmas, we're going to pause for, for a few weeks and we're going to make use of that. So for that reason, I'll ask you to turn with me to, not to John, but to Matthew. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 1? What we're going to do is we're going to prepare this week and next for the Christmas celebration by looking maybe a little bit more closely than we sometimes do at a couple of places. Uh, One this morning in Matthew and one next week in Luke's Gospel. And we're looking at these two places because these are places that give us some description in, in unique ways about what happened when Christ was born in Bethlehem. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the genealogy that we find uh, in Matthew 1. And I did not title the message this, but I thought about, you can hear my hopefulness for this morning, I thought about titling our time this morning, that time a genealogy was interesting. Uh, just because, not because they're not interesting, but because really in our, in our reading of the Bible, when we come to a genealogy, Sometimes it doesn't seem interesting. Sometimes we can make assumptions, right? We can see that the genealogy goes from verse 18 of that chapter to verse 32 and then say, okay, I get it. We're learning that this man tied to this man and then just start on verse 33. Um, The point, uh, well, if that's what we can tend to think about genealogies, I hope that we come away this morning with a different understanding of what often is happening when God's Word chooses to stop and to list out for us uh, how how a a particular line has progressed. Um, That certainly is the case here with Matthew. Matthew has been extremely on purpose in what he's giving us here in these verses, and it is a revealing genealogy indeed. So we'll read it in just a moment, Um, but let me tell you beforehand, there are going to be three things that I'm going to ask us to notice in this text that we're going through together. Uh, Let me encourage you as we read in just a moment, verses 1 to 16, that's where we'll be. Don't let your mind wander as we're doing this. If we read these and you know none of these names, then as you're hearing them, one thing you can be thinking about is the fact that Each one of these names represents an entire life in a progression that it's showing us. A whole life that went by with all of life's hardships and twists and turns. Each of these names is a life, and it's a life that's a part of, as we're being shown here, it's a chain and a link that God has ordained and that God has protected in order to bring at last the final name in this genealogy, the promised seed. You could be thinking about that if you don't know any of the names in this list. If we're reading this and you know some of the names that we come across, you can think like that as well, but then each time you hear one of those names, you can let that part of the story for just a second pop back into your mind. And so you can think as we're reading about just how much has happened as God has led his people through history, through the ages, 
toward this very end. This is what we're seeing here. So I'll read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew's Gospel begins in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We aren't working through this text verse by verse like we would typically do in our study. Uh, one of the main reasons we do that is to be very deliberate and careful to understand the driving point and flow of a passage. And it is true that you can, in some ways, you can do that pretty easily with a genealogy. In a broad way, what's happening is that it's being demonstrated to us. Jesus' family lineage tracing back both to David, in this case, and to Abraham. That's what he's doing as a collective whole here. Uh, and as he does it, he does it like genealogies often do. And this is important for us to understand. He doesn't do it by trying to list every single name in the chain. He's not even attempting that. Especially when it comes to genealogies that trace large periods of time, that's almost never what's happening. Uh, Well-known names in certain pieces are connected together for the sake of time. We know, for example, in this case, that he skips over names here in several places. You just have to compare Matthew's genealogy here to Luke's. Um, and notice, for example, that 
when he lists the generations after David, Matthew lists 27 generations. Luke's genealogy has 42 generations after David. It's obviously not all of them, and Matthew's not even claiming to do so. That's no scandal. So he's not trying to accomplish the, some sort of a bare historical tracing from one to the next all the way through. What he is providing here is proof that would have been easily recognized and accepted of the connections between Jesus and David, between Jesus and Abraham. And that's what he provides here. What I want us to see together this morning are some things that he does, really three points that Matthew makes in the way he chooses to compose this genealogy. Because if you think about it, if genealogies are not required to trace every single line, then in the names you do choose, even in that, you can be making particular points, can't you? These guys are very good at what they do, and they're very, very intentional. They are taking these sorts of things very seriously, far more seriously than we give them credit for. And as we watch and notice, there are some things that I think we're meant to see in what Matthew's giving us here. By by way of preview, here here are the three points that I hope we will see by the time we're finished. There are these. Number one, a point about his own record of Jesus, what he's doing here. We'll see that in verse 1. Second, a point about the Gentiles' relation to Jesus. We'll see that in verses 3 to 6 in particular. And then third, a point about the supernatural origin of this man whose genealogy we're being given, of Jesus. That'll come in verse 16. So a point about Matthew's own record of Jesus, a point about the Gentiles' relation to Jesus, and a point about the supernatural origin of Jesus. Matthew does some things on purpose to point these things out to us as we're even getting started in his gospel. The first one we can see here just by looking at verse 1, a point about Matthew's own record of Jesus. If I have to pick, I think this one easily has fascinated me the most this week. So we'll probably spend more time here than we will the other two points. I almost decided, I told Candace at one point, and then I wound up changing my mind here. I almost decided for us to spend our whole morning with verse 1 only. So you're welcome that we did not do that. Um, It is incredible how deliberately Matthew starts off this gospel. And we know how we can do this kind of thing. We we can immediately set a frame of mind just by the way we word things, especially in an opening. If I were standing up here and I opened a sentence like this, truly, truly, I say to you, just by doing that, I would have already put a particular frame of mind into you, a certain set of expectations even maybe about what kind of thing might be coming next. In fact, I might even be making you uncomfortable in doing that if I didn't follow it up with a direct quote from Scripture, right? Because you can tell I am bringing your mind to the very authority of Jesus Christ as he said that many, many times in his ministry. I'm drawing to mind a context. By the way, I've worded this. Matthew is doing that here very obviously on purpose. He is tapping into the Old Testament from the first verse, when he opens like he does. And maybe you can tell, even in the way we've put it into English, doesn't it sound a bit strange? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
well, okay. Um, well, we have to really fight the temptation to have a general assumption that the Bible, this, the, the writers of Scripture were pretty casual with their wording. and with, That's not the case. And it's healthy for us to learn to fight against that kind of an assumption. There are two ways that he's tapping into the Old Testament in what he's just done here in verse 1. The first is broader than the second. The first is that he's tapping into an Old Testament pattern, an Old Testament structural pattern. As we go through the Old Testament, which is very well written and arranged, there are particular ways that the authors show what they intend to be advances in the storyline, advances in redemptive history, where they can mark for us something big and new is now happening in God's plans. And remember, when it comes to that ancient Hebrew form of writing, they didn't use paragraph breaks, didn't have chapter divisions or anything like that. In fact, it's interesting, the, the introduction of chapter divisions into the Hebrew Old Testament is actually later than its introduction, intro, its introduction into English Bibles. It wasn't until the mid-1300s AD that the Jewish Old Testament scriptures were first organized into chapter breaks. 1300s AD. That's insane. And you know why they did that when they did it? It's really hard to know a text well, to organize it in your own mind, if not even to try to memorize, if there are not organizational structures. Right? If you look at that text, it's just line after line without, so it's, it's incredible. Um, so what do we think? Do we think the Jews just went for thousands of years really not knowing their Bibles well, not having a sense of structure because they were hopelessly lost? In the, well, of course not. They didn't do it like we do, but they had many ways to mark changes and to mark off sections. And what they did, they put into the writing itself. What they did was when they came to, when the author comes to the next major figure in development in the story, they would stop and give what they called in Hebrew the toledot. Toledot. T-O-L-E-D-O-T is how we write that out in English. It's a word that means generations or a, an account of someone and their descendants. A lot of times it immediately is followed by a genealogy, but not always. This happens at, at all the key points of progression in the Old Testament. So in particular, you've got the sections that introduce the lives of, let's see if these are major figures, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. Yeah, those are the big ones, right? Each of those five places opens with the same sort of heading. And if you don't mind, let's go back there and just see it with our own eyes. This will be, I rarely have you turn to a place where we're going to read one sentence and then move on. But let's just look at these very quickly. Uh, I think it's a good exercise to see this repetition. So these are all in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.4 is the first place that we see this. And it reads like this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. These are the generations of heaven and earth. Now, skip ahead maybe a page. Genesis 5, 1. 
reads like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 6-9. We're just going to pepper these here real quickly. Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. So all I'm asking you to do is to just let your eyes see this repetition. Go on to chapter 11, verse 27. It reads like this. Now these are the generations of Terah. Next, Genesis chapter 25. And find verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Last place I'll have you look here at Genesis 37, verse 2. And it says this, these are the generations of Jacob. And there they are. The the only place outside of the book of Genesis where this formula comes up, and so therefore it's the last place it happens in the Old Testament, is in the book of Numbers. You don't have to turn there. But Numbers 3.1 says, these are the generations of Aaron and Moses. And if you think about the narrative progression, that makes sense that that would be the last place we would see this kind of a formula, because you've got, and what you have here is a tracing of a promise. You have the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will come a seed of the woman who is going to bring victory and rescue. And and that is what launches the whole narrative. That's what launches the whole of, of redemptive history, isn't it? It's that promise that is then traced from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac, not Esau, but Isaac, remember all of those situations, to Jacob, and is then put into national terms with the nation of Israel, and specifically with David at its head. This is, you've just sort of summed up all of the Old Testament, but with that one sentence. But it is interesting, if you think about it, there is no Toledot for David in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament era ends then at the end of the Old Testament, and 400 years go by. And now there's a man on earth named Matthew. Matthew has come to know a man named Jesus. And Matthew has witnessed everything that's taken place in his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Matthew has been taught by the resurrected Christ He has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who among other things in his sanctification is, as an apostle, Matthew, is bringing back to his mind everything that Jesus taught. Matthew has lived through God's revelation of the mystery of Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. All this has happened to Matthew, and he sits down to record the narrative of it all. So he's recording Holy Scripture now under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit who led the writing of the Old Testament. And how is he going to open? It's time for the next Toledot. The next stage of redemptive history has now come. So Matthew, by doing what he's doing here, is tapping into and deliberately continuing a pattern of the Old Testament. That's one thing we can see when we think of tapping into the Old Testament. But actually, we can get even more specific than that. 
in terms of his tapping into the Old Testament. He's not just tapping into a general pattern. And this is where his particular wording comes in in verse 1. He is tapping into a particular wording uh, even itself that's more particular than that group of passages we just walked through. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we look at the Old Testament, that the Jews of Jesus' time were actually using and reading and learning from. Almost nobody is reading Hebrew at that time. If we want to look at the Bible that they are using, that they're learning from and being taught from, we look at the Greek Old Testament. And when we look at the passages that we just walked through in the Greek Old Testament, they all look exactly the same. And in fact, we only looked at the major ones that set off the major sections. Within those sections, there are some other toledotes of smaller significance, so that there are 10 of them in all, 10 of those toledote pattern places. And if you look at them in the Greek Old Testament, they all look exactly the same. They all, uh, show, they all are worded identically, except for two of them. There are two places where it doesn't say it in that normal way. These are the generations of, that the other eight all do. Instead, it says something very particular. It says, this is the book of the genesis of, or the book of the generations of. The wording is, Biblos Geneseos. And I give that to you because I'm going to use that phrase a couple times here. Biblos Geneseos. There are two places that it says it like that instead of the way all the other ones do. Those two places are Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1. And they are the two places where it's not simply describing the latest development of generations in God's plan. It is doing that in that way. It's, it's pointing to God's developing plan. But it's not simply describing a development in that way. It's actually describing new creation events. These are the two places that are speaking about new creation, not just development. So Genesis 2.4 says, This is the Biblos Geneseos of heaven and earth. And then it recounts the specifics of how God planted the Garden of Eden and put Adam into it. And then the second is Genesis 5.1. It says, this is the Biblos Geneseos of Adam. And it recounts God's making Adam in his image. And then traces his descendants down to Noah. Those are the only two places in the whole Old Testament that that phrase Biblos Geneseos appears. And what would you guess, if I gave you three guesses, are the first two words of Matthew's Gospel. Biblos Geneseos of Jesus Christ. This is how he opens. Now, what that would point us to then, and we have to think about the significance. It's not just cool. It is very cool. But he's not trying to be cool. He's making a point. What this is directing us toward then is that something even more significant is happening here than an announcement of a progression of the promised seed line. That is happening here. He is announcing that to us. He's tapping into the Old Testament pattern to show us that the next stage of redemptive history is here. But it's telling us further than that, that we should be preparing to hear as we're reading this account in chapter 1 and in this whole gospel, not just of a development in redemption, but a development in creation itself. Now, if that's the case, then this verse, verse 1, is not just setting up the genealogy that starts in verse 2. It's setting up the whole gospel of Matthew. What is Matthew about to tell us? He, he's about to tell us 
about a, a creative act of God. This Jesus Christ, this son of David, this son of Abraham, is a figure who administrates an act of God's creation purposes. So that we have these kinds of statements made in the New Testament, like 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Having been in John for so long now, we should be familiar with this. The kingdom that Christ is ushering in can't even be seen apart from a rebirth, he tells us in John 3. Or you have John 1. Those who belong to Christ have been born, not of blood, not of human will, not by a father's physical desire. They have been born of God. This is the thing that has happened, that Jesus Christ has come to effect. Now, here's why this point is so significant for us this morning and this month as we're preparing our minds to celebrate Christmas. My friends, this is no announcement of the birth of a new patriarch. This is the announcement of the birth of a new Adam. A new race is about to be born. I mean, we're talking about things at that level when we're talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. You'll sometimes hear people say things, and I know what is meant, and it may even be helpful in some ways in our cultural context. You'll you'll hear people say, there's only one race on this earth, the human race. Many ethnicities, only one race. There's some truth there. I get what's meant. But I would just suggest to you that because of Christ, it's better, it's more accurate to describe the situation like this, that what's going on on this planet is that there are two kinds of human beings. There are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are in Adam, and who are therefore still under Adam's curse. There's much more that could be said about this, and that should be. But for this morning, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves about what we're celebrating at Christmas. And here's the first thing that we've seen. Jesus' birth has marked the entry into the world of a new Adam. And in fact, the last Adam. There are a lot of issues going on in our lives. And when we get good news, we breathe sighs of relief. There is no greater breath of relief that can be breathed than the one that is breathed at the news that because Because Adam is the head of a cursed race. Here's what we hear in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It tells us of the fate of all who are in Adam. What's the fate that, Peter, that Paul tells us there? Awaits all who are in Adam. The fate is, in every way, death. But here's what it says. Here's where the breath of relief comes in. He says this, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. This is what we're about to celebrate, that in the manger, wrapped in swaddling claws, lay a new Adam. It's our first point to notice this morning, even in the way that Matthew prepares us here. The second point that Matthew takes aim at in this opening with this genealogy is a point about the Gentiles' relation to Jesus. Now, does that sound familiar to you? 
Now that we've been in John 12 for some time, we'll probably move quicker through this than we might have otherwise, because we have been talking about this idea a great deal here in recent weeks. But we shouldn't miss it as we look at this genealogy, that five times Matthew chooses to do something that is not unheard of, but is very unusual. And that is that five times in the genealogy, he lists the names of moms. Mothers show up here. Now, the fifth mother is going to be Mary, of course, and with her will come our third point this morning. But with the other four, Matthew is making, I'm convinced, a deliberate and striking point. They all appear in verses 3 to 6. Who do you have there? Do you see the women mentioned? You have Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5. And we know Bathsheba in verse 6. doesn't even name her, I think, on purpose. It calls her the wife of Uriah. But there's the four women. Now, what do they all have in common? Certainly, in each of their stories, there is some sort of brokenness and redemption in each of these women's stories. Uh, But it varies quite a bit in terms of what that looks like. The significant thing being demonstrated by their inclusion in this genealogy is that all four of them are Gentiles. Gentiles of different sorts, but all regarded by the Jews to be non-Jews, as they would have been regarded. That's clear about Rahab. You remember Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, before it was conquered. It's clear about Ruth, the Moabitess. Bathsheba, you know her origins when you remember what Matthew spells out here explicitly. He doesn't identify her by name. He identifies her by her first marriage, which shows us something about her background. Who was she married to? Uriah the Hittite, right? Uriah the Hittite. That just leaves Tamar. And the Old Testament actually does not explicitly tell us where Tamar came from, what her origins are, but the historian Pliny names her as a Syrian proselyte, and there are several ancient Jewish sources that identify her as a non-Jew. This is at least how the Jews of the time would have viewed her. So, and I don't know if this is intentional on Matthew's part or not, but it's sort of ironic. Rather than holding out the four women of Israel here, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. He doesn't hold them out. Here we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. We have held out to us the four examples, notice, not just of Gentile participation in the promises given to Israel, but four examples of the seed line coming about by means of Gentile inclusion. He's telling us this is how the Christ finally came. This is God's plan to protect the line until the Christ would come. And here are four Gentiles included in that line. We want to remember this going forward this morning. Because what we find then is a Messiah, a Messiah king who has claim not just over Israel but over the whole world. So what do we have so far here? We have news of one coming who comes as the head of a new humanity altogether. We have news that that one relates to and has claim upon not just the Israelite nation, 
through which the promises have been guarded, but over people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now, thirdly, this morning, we see Matthew highlight a point that we on this side of things understand to demonstrate the supernatural origin of Jesus. And this is seen in verse 16. The fact that Matthew is making a point here is not hard to notice, and that's because what he does here, even with the wording, we'll reread this in a second, is he has created a very repetitious pattern in our ears as we're hearing this that's suddenly broken in verse 16. And in the moment of verse 16, there is no clear reason given as to why that would be necessary. He just does it. Listen again to this. I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Um, Feel the rhythm of this as I read so that you can feel the break. Starting in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, here we go. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It should finish with... and. Why couldn't it? And Joseph, the father of Jesus, who was called the Christ. But he breaks the pattern on purpose. One Matthew scholar named John Nolan describes the effect of this in a way that was memorable to me. He he writes, Joseph seems to be being denied the normal role in procreation, but without explanation. It produces a puzzle for the reader until it is resolved in the narrative of verses 18 to 25. That helps us to to try to put ourselves in the shoes of someone reading this gospel who doesn't know what's coming. I mean, think about the effect of this. Seeing a genealogy, sensing the pattern, having it upended like this, and replaced with a wording that seems to be either totally unnecessary, or is, El, uh, is, is intentionally leaving out Joseph? What's the deal here? It, this is meant to spark curiosity and maybe confusion that he then immediately resolves in the next portion. But of course, that curiosity and confusion, I mean, what is the news that that is setting us up for? In other words, what's the reality that made that change necessary? And what we go on to discover is that he needed to word it like that in verse 16 because Joseph is not connected to Jesus by blood. Jesus' birth, you understand what I mean by this? Jesus' birth is like our new birth in that way. Jesus' birth did not come by the will or power of man. It came by the will of God. And yet even... This genealogy, I mean, this is great. At the same time, the genealogy demonstrates that God was never going to send his son into just any physical line on the earth. It's not as if it didn't matter whose family this Messiah is born into. Because God had made promises, hadn't he? He had promised that the sons of Abraham would be honored in this way. That through their line, the Genesis 3 promise would come. 
Through their line, the nations of the world were going to be blessed, not through any other line. And when that blessing had passed to Isaac and then to Jacob, and even after the 12 patriarchs had come then from Jacob, we, we heard the promise pass to one of them in particular in Genesis 49.10. It passed to Judah. God has kept his promises. We see that here at the same time, don't we? The Messiah, the rescuer, must come through the line of Abraham and his son Judah and his son David. And yet, verse 16, when he comes, his coming will be utterly inexplicable, except as a result of supernatural divine work. Because there are some other promises that have to come to pass, aren't there? Because the virgin is about to bear a child. And he will be well named when they call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. These are breadcrumbs that Matthew is dropping from the very beginning as he's preparing us to hear the story of Jesus' conception and birth and then supernatural life. In my encouragement to us, as we're now counting down the days to Christmas, is that we use the instruction of God's word like this to enlarge the gratitude and the awe that's in our minds as we think about the nativity gift that we're preparing to celebrate. And in particular this morning, these three pictures are what have been brought to our minds by God's Word, that in that manger lay no mere human child, but the very second person of the Godhead, clothed in, though never constrained by, frail humanity, fully God and fully man. That's one of the realities we are about to celebrate culturally. You're not going to hear that on commercials on television. But God's people know what we are celebrating. We know what we're looking at when we peer into that manger. The second picture that we've been given here is that in that manger lay the rescuer and king of the entire world. And we do well to remember we do well to remember that as we think about the lost around us as we think about those who seem to us hopelessly out of God's reach, that there was a whole world cut off from the promises of God, strangers to his covenants and his promises, and Christ has reached them. Christ has conquered and broken down those walls, Ephesians 2, and we are all testaments of that, that his authority and power extend to all the world. This is who we see as we look into the manger. And third, that we've seen this morning is that in that manger lay nothing less than the new and last Adam, the head of a new humanity. Think about the singing that takes place at the announcement of Jesus' birth. I mean, a long time before that, the Red Sea was parted and people walked across it on dry land, and no angels were sent to sing in celebration. There was a day that the sun literally went backward in the sky at Isaiah's request, and no angels were sent to sing in celebration. 
but this. This that we're preparing to celebrate, this called for a full angelic choir. And it calls for just such eagerness and rejoicing in our hearts. So may God's word this morning help us to be preparing ourselves to marvel at what we celebrate this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us in your son. We thank you for the freedom to celebrate in this season, in this time of the year, uh, in this special way, just the, the miraculous nature of what you have done when your son entered the world wrapped in human flesh, taking on to himself our frail humanity so that he might redeem what he has assumed. We thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, we do pray just very specifically this morning and in this season that uh, as the culture around us puts its true nature on display more and more all the time, Lord, that we would not simply gape in horror, that we would not simply complain, but that we would recognize the opportunity that you are giving us to Embrace the ways that we are set apart from the world, that you have called us out. We are in the world, but not of the world. Lord, help our thoughts more and more as we celebrate Christmas, as we, as we do any such thing. Help us to, to be sanctified in our thinking and our living and our acting so that what we do, we are doing very self-consciously in thankfulness to what you have provided and in expectation of what you have done in your son. Purify your people, we pray in these days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.